Welcome to the Now Next podcast, where we explore your meaningful now and meaningful next. I am Drew Tucker here at Capital University, university pastor, director for the Center for Faith and Learning, and I have also unclogged at least one toilet on campus, so you know I'm willing to do the hard work. And with me, we have two other co-hosts who are willing to put in the time and energy on behalf of our community. Who do we have? Hello, my name is Mary Claire Kunkel. I am a senior undergraduate student at Capital University and I have not unclogged a toilet. However, I have used the toilets in Kearns, which I'm assuming is where you've unclogged and they're not the greatest. So I'm sorry that you've had to do that. I'm Sammy DiBiasso. I also work for the Center for Faith and Learning as a graduate assistant. And I was just racking my brain for a minute of like, I've not ever um, (laughs) unplugged is what came to mind. That's not the right word. (laughs) I've unplugged a lot of things. I have not unclogged a toilet in my job up to this point, but I still have a few more weeks. So we'll see what happens. I have scraped a lot of wax off of the floor from candles. You know, that is not a fun time. So I've done that before too. It's very tedious. Well, welcome back our dear friends, dear listeners. We are so grateful for engaging another episode in particular today, an episode in which we're discussing how we are called through something. But before we jump into that, we really want to emphasize that vocation here in this conversation, in this space and time is not linear. It's a process that's complex and has lots of layers and we move through different points and turn in different directions consistently and how much freedom there is in the midst of that and when we are pursuing our vocation. And we really want to turn towards action focus this semester. And so today we'll talk about how we are called through something. And to do that this week, we have two guests, Mariah Reichert, who just finished up a master's program at Yale Divinity School studying theology, and now will be entering Indiana University's Religion, Textuality, and Cultural Imagination PhD program. When not studying, you can find her enjoying large cups of coffee or watching RuPaul's Dragon. Alex Mills is a senior film and media production major who works at the Center for Faith and Learning at Capital University as its audio, video engineer intern. He is also a child of a pastor. Alex and Mariah, we're so excited to have you here to share your experiences. Well, today we are focusing on, with vocation, you are called to something. And with that, you are called to clarify in conversation with your community. So for some people, that is our families of origin or our families of choice or both. For some, that's a church, a temple, a mosque or a synagogue or another place of worship or community of worship. For some, that's just friends, peers, coworkers. It's a whole fun thing. And so within that, how does this all happen? So some of it is very intentional. There's kind of a formula to it. You schedule meetings with mentors. And some of it's just informal. It happens organically in conversations where you didn't think you were going to have some big revelatory moment. And then you do. And you're like, oh, what a fun little zest to add to the day. Um, And so some of this intentional things, you know, small groups, civic organizations, teams that are intentionally formed, but maybe informally something happens within that. So they kind of overlap a little bit. And it's also just, you aren't only getting 
information from people older than you or who have lived experience. Sometimes you are mentoring someone else. And even if you are the quote unquote wiser of the situation, you know, they can teach you stuff too and they can help you learn more things about yourself. Along with that, one of the important things to understand is that as we find our callings and our communities, our cultures play into that very significantly. And so how you find your calling, how your parents or how your elders or how your schools influence you will be different than how they influence others. So for instance, my dad, God bless him, would tell me as I was growing up, Drew, you can be anything that you want to be. Said a different way, my dad lied to me. He wanted to believe that because we were middle class, you know, comparatively wealthy, white Anglo-Saxon Protestants, that I could do anything because that's what we have been told for hundreds of years. In fact, if I had tried to become an astrophysicist, I would have failed miserably. I would drop dead on Dancing with the Stars. There's nothing about my body that suggests I could succeed at that. There are things in my culture that we say that are not in fact true. And yet that doesn't mean that everything was unhelpful or inaccurate about that. Because of who my dad was as a small business owner, I got the chance to learn at his business about the things that I was good at, but also the things that I really hated. And so where you're at in your space, you have to understand that your culture might influence you in different ways than your neighbors and your friends. And also recognize that you might have privilege and oppression that are at play for you, depending on your gender identity, depending on your sexual orientation, depending on your race, depending on your ethnicity, depending on your global status. There are opportunities that some people have that others don't. That doesn't mean that those who have the opportunities deserve them. Let's be very clear about that. Access does not equal value. Instead, it means that we have a responsibility as people of faith to ask, why do we have this opportunity? Or what is it that is influencing this kind of prejudice or oppression? And how can we address that? A couple of tools that we use to do that are called asset mapping and community mapping. Asset mapping is all about how your assets relate to the needs that you see in the world and God's values. And community mapping is your visualization of where the power lies in your community. Who are the power players that appear not just in the state house or not just in a political realm, but who are the business and financial players? Who are the socially connected people who may not have a lot of access to wealth, but have a lot of access to relationship and see how those things relate to other people's maps. These kinds of things are really important, but ultimately it gets down to this. Who are you called to be and what are you called to do? And how does your community encourage you to do that? That's where we're going to be landing today as we explore with a couple of people who arose in, in places where I'm sure they were told they should be something. And instead they have followed some other paths and journeys. And I am so thankful for that. Drew, I want to cut in here real quick. You said the word map so many times and all my brain could think about is the Dora song. I'm the map, I'm the map, I'm the map. Like literally, I think I my brain zoned out and like my eyes went wide and I just visualized the map dancing across the screen. This might help our listeners to realize that I've never seen enough Dora to know what you're talking about because I'm an old person. <laughs> old. <laughs> but I'm so glad that there's something that might be resonant with people that are not in their 30s. 
So now we are going to turn towards our interview portion. And we are curious just to start out with Alex and Mariah. Tell us about some of the communities who've spoken purpose into your life. So as I think about the, the communities that have been important in shaping my own purpose, my family comes to mind pretty immediately. I have two younger siblings who are six and eight years younger than I am. We're a very close-knit family. And so we talk about a lot of those things together. So that's very prominent in my mind. But I think also uh, my church community and my faith communities that I have been a part of have been some of the networks that have connected me to mentors and leaders who've helped me to navigate my own path. Yeah, for me, just to be very specific with one particular community, I think that Embrace Ministries at Capital has really been that core community for me throughout this time in my life, especially, because it, it showed me that there's not necessarily one right way to, to go about life and to find what works best for me and then bring it back to what I find important. That is so helpful in naming like it's family and also the things that we've been invited into, like different communities can speak purpose into our lives at different points in our lives. And it doesn't have to be the same all of the time. I think that's very similar for me. I'm also curious, like how have your cultures influenced some of these purposes in your life? And by culture... I feel like we should kind of define this a little bit more. Like I know both of you are white and from Ohio. So, you know, like Wonder Bread culture <laughs> is what we're really thinking here, right? But I think within that, like the culture of your family, it can be, but it doesn't have to be like an ethnic culture. I think uh, one of my experiences growing up was I grew up for much of my life in a small town in Northwest Ohio, and it was a quite conservative small town, um, but my family is not that conservative. And so I grew up in the tension of conversations we would have at home and ways of thinking about meaning and value at home. And then the ways that value and meaning were narrated in the culture of my hometown, navigating between those things was quite a challenge often. And uh, the kind of pressures that exist in my small town town kind of offered a narrative of what purpose in life might look like. And my parents helped to make sure that that door was always open to something different. But there was often tension to navigate in how to think with both of these communities, right, as I tried to find my own path and my own purpose. You mentioned the idea of communities for a time. And I know that both Mariah and Alex have been a part of fraternity and sorority life in their college experiences. I'm curious if you would talk about how that influence was valuable for a time and also, you know, what it's like to be in a place where you're either not as involved in that as you once were and how your, your transitions might be related to that kind of experience. Because that's something that some people are really interested in and other people have no idea what that kind of life is like. Yeah, I was someone who was much more involved in my sorority in the earlier years of my college degree. And then I'm um, kind of as I got busier and as new folks came into the organization, I kind of moved back a little bit as other things. Uh, my career were kind of pushing me ahead onto new things. But one of the best gifts of it was being networked and connected to the broader university community early on. Uh, so an experience that I had in my undergrad was I changed my major in my 
first semester and I was in a music conservatory program and we were quite contained and you mostly took classes with music students and being in the sorority helped me to navigate that transition out of that major that there are people living other lives in other majors here and there's meaning making beyond the thing that I have been existing in so it was a really big gift for me as I made that really difficult transition early in my college career. Yeah, I, I am very much the same way that now I am, you know, one foot out the door. But I think one of the big things that I, I took away from it was there, there is a saying that my fraternity has its flattened. So I'll say that part first. It's causa latet visas notissima. What that means is the cause is hidden, the results well known. And I think that's something that I've taken a lot with me is like, I don't have to be at the front to make a difference. I can be a part of something without being the point at the top. So that's something that I'm going to take with me beyond just the, the four years that I've been with my fraternity. You kind of have already hit on this with the cultures and the specific experiences you just talked about um, with being a part of Greek life. But what are some more experiences or specific events that really shaped your sense of call? The thing that first strikes me when you offered this question, Mary Claire, is that I think many of those moments I didn't realize at the time. And it was kind of a retrospective experience that in conversation with other people, I realized that somehow this thing that had happened to me three years ago or one moment in class or something was defining in setting me forward. So I'm grateful for those conversations that I have had, but I didn't know at the time that my whole world was shifting and changing. And it's only being made sense later, which I think is a really challenging thing in the narrative of like knowing what you want to do forever right now. And as you've talked about on the podcast before, right? Like discernment isn't that way and finding your vocation isn't linear. And so sometimes only in reflection can we see like I was involved in theater a lot as a kid and my experiences in theater that taught me to love stories and to think carefully about how we tell stories and the power that that has absolutely connects to the academic work that I'm doing now. But when I left theater, I was not at all sure what the benefit of that heartbreak would be or how I could fold it into what was coming next for me. I love that. I also kind of see that in my life. Looking back, they look like little hints at what is to come. But then if you look at it moving forward, it's kind of accumulating all of these skills and all of these interests that kind of push and guide you to where you're to go next. When I was a baby, my family called me rubber face baby because I made a lot of funny faces. And I've been recently thinking about that for, you know, content creation and thumbnails, you know, pulling a captivating face. I'm like, wow, I was kind of born for this. I've been doing this ever since I had a face. So I don't know. It just, it gives me a warm fuzzy feeling inside knowing that everything builds to what we are becoming. That kind of sounded like a Noah Centineo tweet that it, it was kind of deep, but also not. So Alex, what are your thoughts? I feel like I've mostly stumbled my way into figuring out where I'm supposed to go. The experiences, the events that have led me here right now, like the, the biggest of those has been the ones where I've quote unquote failed. I think those are big ones or like made a wrong mistake, be it like when I first came to Capitol, I thought I wanted to be a history teacher. I am now in the film and media production program. So that's a hard left turn. <laughs> and even these things that I thought I wanted when I was a kid that I 
it happened. I, I got what I wanted to do. Like when I played football in seventh grade, I was like, oh no, I don't want to do that at all. It's just realizing that the things that you think are right for you at the time, that might not be what's meant for you down the line. That's so helpful, Alex, because I think we forget that the things that we pursue don't have to be the things that end up bleeding into what our vocation is, or they might be the things that someone has invited us to, like you said, football, we didn't like that, not a fan. But then how that then leads us to different avenues on like our map or different little streams that we can like journey path down and how all of those things speak to like this interwoven, really windy, complex, complicated road. And I think one of the challenges about that is we're always living on the growth edge, right? Like we don't actually know what's coming next, even as we have hopes in that direction. And there's no sense where you get to like pause and be like, I yes, I figured out exactly what I want to do and I'm comfy you know um i that's especially true i think for young adults and for students who are in degree programs but i would imagine drew that you're not like settled and sitting easy in your work either so we're always on that front edge and don't none of us know what's next and so looking at others whose paths seem so linear and clear while we're living right on the edge of what's happening uh, can be really challenging and can distort what's actually happening in their lives as well Are there any specific practices that y'all do to help you figure all of this out? Or do you just kind of stumble? Because honestly, I don't think that I have practices. I'm pretty sure I just stumble. So I'm ready to learn if you do. I think the big one for me is just doing it. And if you stumble, you stumble. Like, I think that's a, a big part of it. It's just like, if you want to see if this is the right thing for you, then try it. But also don't feel like just because you tried it, you have to stick with it. Hear ye, hear ye. Didn't realize this was a podcast from the days of yore. This is really, it's good. We're still on a boat. You know, we're still traveling. <laughs> traveling back in time, apparently. A time machine made out of shame. One of the things that I'm really excited about in this process, this idea that we are called through something, that you're called to clarify your purpose, your vocation and conversation with your community, is hearing about the the stories of people that have influenced your lives. So who are the elders that have guided you along your path? And what is it that they have done that's been particularly helpful as you have discerned to this point who you're called to be? so many people that come to my mind as people who have been really important for me. One of the most prominent groups of folks, though, is the religion and philosophy department at Capitol, who welcomed me in when I kind of fell into my religion major and were really supportive as I found my own path within that work. They were brutally honest about what this path that I was actually thinking about was going to be and what some of the challenges would be. And so I could actually sit in the present and contend with, am I actually willing to fold those into my life? Like is the joy of what I'm thinking about doing and the excitement that it brings me, is that worth the things that will be difficult? Because even if it's the right vocational fit for us, nothing is that exciting. Like there are frustrating parts of any and every job and any and every relationship and place we have in our communities. And so having people who can be really frank with you about the things that you are thinking toward is really helpful in that discernment process. Is this something I really am willing to make part of my life or do I need to redirect with this new information that I have? I genuinely think that the the two, and I'm not calling them old by calling them my elders, but I think 
it really is my parents who have helped guide me along my path the most, especially my my dad, because of course he is a pastor. So he's technically been my pastor for my whole life. Uh, and he's just helped me figure out what I've wanted or not wanted before I think I even knew and always, you know, helping me realize that the path I'm on is not always necessarily the path I'm stuck to, or that there is a path that I can take that maybe I'm just not seeing yet. So yeah, Pops has definitely helped me with that a lot. I think by Pops, you mean the Todd. For as long as I know your father, I will think of him as that character from Scrubs. Oh gosh, no, no, absolutely not. That's a terrible image. Never compare this man to my father ever again. I will quit. If any listeners have seen Scrubs, you know. Well, we've been talking a lot about the things that we are called through and like the people or the elders or the Todds who have helped guide us. Todd Mills, also helpful in my own discernment. I'm for like serious. But I'm also curious, like in, in that sense, a lot of times our vocation, it tends to be focused so individualistic. We really focus on like our own personal vocation. And I'm curious what you all think about how do we speak a collective sense of vocation within our own individualistic culture? It's a toughie, honestly. Uh, we asked it because we don't know the answer. And so like this can be a perfect time to brainstorm together. And, and I don't think there is one right or wrong answer. Like it's evident that there's so many people, our own personal vocation is influenced in a collective sense by all of those people, institutions, all of those things that help breathe into us and give us life. But how do we speak that into a culture that's just like, we should be individuals? I feel like this gets to the difference between what we mean when we talk about vocation versus like a job, right? Because like a career is probably adjacent or connected to your vocation, but it's not all encompassing. And a career path, I think, can often and be more individual, right? Like I submitted my applications, even if people supported them, like I was the primary driver of the boat there for going with nautical analogies. But vocation isn't just the work that we do to get paid to put food on the table, but vocation is this much bigger picture. And for me, aspects of my vocation that are connected to the work that I want to do or uh, that are not connected are the things that hold me count accountable to my communities, right? And that make sure that I am not having a conversation only with myself in my room with my book, but that I am in conversation with faith communities and with my friends and with my family. And those things are equally as important to my vocational path as the work that I'm hoping to do and get paid for because it's like, yeah, our, our vocation is a, a lot more than just the the work that we do. Like, you're, I, I am also called to be a son and a brother and a friend and a partner and all of this other stuff. And like, I feel like by definition, your your vocation can't be individualistic because you're called to be with other people in so many different forms and ways. And I, I think, yeah, it is just that making a hardline definition of you are called to do more than just work for 40 hours a week and go home and sleep and then come back and do it again. It's like you are called for so much more than that. Just making sure that people know that and that people know that it's okay to be that. 
that's the reason that we talk about vocation as the meaningful life-giving things that we do, right? That it's not about the the monetarily valuable things. It's not about the publicly commendable things. It's about those things that are meaningful for you and life-giving for the people that you engage. And so, for instance, I know that Alex does that is life-giving for a lot of people is that he makes all of the live streaming work for all of Capital Worship and Candlelight every single week, which is darn near magic, given that we were not doing that 13 months ago. And so getting us to that point would have been quite literally impossible without people who knew how to do that, who found meaning in that and who could connect that way with us. And so in a very different way, and, and I joke now with people about how little I knew about VeggieTales before I met Mariah Rikert. I did not grow up watching VeggieTales, but I grew up thinking that they were kind of ridiculous and, you know, pop culture, Christianity, evangelical mishmash of vegetables. It was like Gerber baby food in Christian cartoon form. Fighting words. Golly. But after I met you, I saw how both intentional they were designed and how very impactful they were for the audience for whom they were designed. And the reality is, as a kind of middle millennial, they weren't designed for me. Part of it was getting into someone else's vocation, seeing the value from somebody else that helped it mean something so much more. A lot of what you're all saying reminds me of what Drew was talking about earlier with asset mapping, but then also community mapping. And so I think part of it is bringing everyone's, you know, individual or rather personal vocations together and trying to figure out how we can work together for a common goal that benefits everyone. Part of it is teamwork and part of it is trying to vision or lead how can we funnel all of this together to make it life-giving for the community. Mary Claire, what you're getting at now also speaks to another question we can problematize slash figure out together is like, how can we shape culture in ways that honor all vocations? And, and part of that may be, I mean, of what you all have said at this, up to this point is like, making sure people know vocation isn't just a career that's nine to five and the purpose is for money and survival and all of those good things. So both of you are pastor's kids, different pastors, different families. I know it might be confusing because Alex has an older sister named Mariah, but different spelling, different family, different situation, yet similar situation. So what's it like to grow up as a pastor's kid, but then not to become a pastor? I think for me growing up, one of the, the things that happened was when I was younger, it's not that I wanted to be a pastor. It's that kindergarten, first grade, second grade, I was like, I'm going to do what my dad does. But then eventually I got to a point where it's like, that's not at all what I wanted to do. And I feel like at a certain point that almost drew a wedge between me and my church family because it's like well your dad's doing it why don't you <laughs> especially once my sister mariah is in seminary now so it's like once she decided that's what she wanted to do it's like well why don't you want to be a part of the family tradition now it's like because just don't feel that call i don't feel that pull to be there so it's like that really separated me from from that part of my life i think even further it's a really challenging and beautiful growing up experience at least it was for me um I think one of the things that I learned is 
I know what a pastor's life is like very much from the inside. And I also took really, really seriously what does it mean to be called into ministry. And so when I fell into my religion major, knowing that I like talking about religion, uh, but I wasn't really thinking toward ministry and tried to kind of be intentional about was I feeling a call toward ministry? And I wasn't. And there were those in my life who couldn't comprehend that somehow I was doing religion and I was still a person of faith and still involved in my church communities, but no, thank you. I don't want to be a pastor. And so I think that's a really challenging thing as you're saying, Alex, to figure out how do you relate to this faith community that has been so formative in your own growth and development and who you are, even as you choose something different than what they might want for you or than what they see you may be doing. Yeah. And and something you brought up there, just people being like, why, why wouldn't you want to do that? A, a question I get all the time is like, why wouldn't you? You would be so good at it. The response to that in my brain is like, I, I know I would be really good at it, but I don't want to do it. I don't want to be someone who stands up and tells people things that are very helpful for them, but is meaningless to me. I, I just don't think that would be very life-giving for me. And in the end, it would just not be life-giving for anyone. So what can we do as members of communities, if we are church-going people, that have pastors with children and to kind of help foster their vocational exploration without putting this pressure on them. What did you all wish that congregations had done instead? Or were there any people that did a really good job at not putting that pressure on you? With with that first half, I think something that could be is maybe put a separation between like when the pastor is the pastor and when the pastor is a parent. Because it's like it's like expecting somebody else in any other career path to always be on in that career path all the time. If you can make that for the pastor, that's going to trickle down and help the family in general, especially the kids. Yeah, to whatever extent you're able to not like fishbowl a pastor's family all that much better. And certainly uh, we appreciate it as a pastor's family, all the ways that people invested in us and supported us. But sometimes that also felt like it came with like a permission for them to be particularly involved and have particular opinions about my parents' parenting style or about what we we're going into or our choices, putting not undue pressure on your pastor's kids to perform within a set of strictures that you think they ought to be just because you know who their dad is or mom is or parent is. And I would echo with Alex that challenge of having your parent also be the pastor of the community that you're a part of. It was really, really, really important to me when I arrived at Capitol and when I first got to know Drew that it was the first time I'd had a pastor who wasn't my dad. And so for the whole time I was at Capitol, I called Drew Pastor Drew exclusively because it was so important to me to have someone who could be my pastor, who could guide me and support me, who wasn't biologically related to me, right? Uh, so I think putting people who also can be spiritual guides in pastors' kids' lives uh, without the pressures of shooting them straight into ministry and sending them off in that direction was really supportive for my own discernment. 
Testament. Well, one of the things that I don't think pastors do enough is affirm that it is so good that both of you could very well be pastors. And I think you've both heard me say that before, but it's also so good that you are not doing that. Part of a good, healthy, differentiated person of faith is to realize we can do things that we are not called to do. And so it might be that you are entirely capable of doing a number of things that are not your vocation. And so being able to model that in being a theologian, in being a media production person, that this is what faithful people do. Faithful people don't just, you know, sit in offices and lead worship on Sundays and visit people who need visited, right? Like that's a good thing. That's a holy thing, but that's not the only good and holy thing that can be done by a person of faith. And we need the church to live that not just in the pulpit, but in all aspects of life. I think another really important differentiation that I've learned is that people of faith don't have to be making explicitly faith content or doing explicitly faith work to retain their identity as people of faith throughout all of that. It can be kind of like maybe your motivation or a part of your identity without it being all encompassing of your identity. And I just from messaging that I hear from a lot of Christian circles, and I kind of got it growing up is that like being a Christian needs to be your whole identity. And I just don't think that that's the case. I think being a child of God can be your whole identity, but that's rather the umbrella rather than like the sole thing. So I think that also helps with, you know, figuring out our vocations within our communities and all that too. Yeah, and I actually think the church has benefited by a diversity of vocations within it, right? Like our churches are strengthened by the variety of perspectives, by the people who do so many things that do uplift the community of the body of Christ, even if they aren't ordained. So one of the things that we keep asking each of our guests, because as we've talked about, there's not a lot of conversation that should happen with our youth as they grow about who we're called to be and what we're called to do, is what do you each wish that you knew about vocation as a kid? When you grow up, your job is not your identity. I think that's something that really would have been helpful when I was younger. And even just like in high school, I still was thinking like, well, whatever career path I choose, whatever major I go into when I finally go off to college, you know, that's going to be me. No, I'll still be Alex. I'll just be doing something alongside that. I wish that I had known that vocation is bigger than career, that it encompasses many parts of me, which will shift and change as I grow and learn more. I also wish that I had known that it is just that next most faithful step that you've talked about before. My mom is a mental health therapist. And she sees many young people, especially many young women who are in their sophomore, junior and senior year of high school and who are totally um, stuck because of how we talk about career and what you do after high school. And they're not able to make the decision because it seems like that decision is going to be the entire rest of their lives. And it's really just choosing the next best, most right, faithful thing. And you'll get there and it's going to be windy and weird. You just have to do the next thing. Well, thank you both for being with us. I really appreciate you spending time sharing wisdom, just being you and the ways that you're living your vocation. So thank you for hanging out with us today. I do want to share before I leave, I had like a little answer guide that I didn't end up using any of the things that I wrote beforehand because I was like, that doesn't really fit. But at the very top in size 38 font, I put, don't swear, dumbass. (laughs) 
so hard. Are you kidding? You could have. I mean, well, thank you all so much. It's been lovely to chat with you all. Also, like, you know, long time listener, first time caller. So, so fun to be a part of your journey. One of the great joys of my life as a pastor is to see how the people that I've worked with develop after they've left our community. It's a big loss to see people like Mariah move on and see people like Alex prepare to graduate, but it's also exactly why we exist in the campus ministry realm. And so to see Alex and Mariah move into this place to discover their calling from their communities, the different ways that communities influenced them, inspired them, even changed their perspective on how they would live their purpose. It's a wonderful privilege to see how God calls us through communities, through relationships, through families, through churches, through mosques, through temples. And it's also a great privilege to see how God acts in ways that we don't expect, in places that we might not assume, oh yes, God is at work there. So whether that's fraternity, sorority, athletics, changing a major, developing a sense that you have a different call than your family, even if you're a pastor's kid, maybe especially if you are a pastor's kid. And knowing that that change does not mean your worth has changed, but that you are called and that your community has helped to shape that calling. Next week is going to be a great turn as we talk about with something that you're called with the fullness of yourself. Now Next is brought to you by the Center for Faith and Learning at Capital University. Due to the COVID-19 pandemic, this episode was recorded remotely over Zoom. Funding for Now Next is thanks to the generous Philip N. Knutson Endowment and Lutheran Campus Ministry. Our co-hosts are Drew Tucker, Mary Claire Hunkel, and Sammy DiBiasto. Our podcast producer is yours truly, and our seaworthy theme music, Fiddle DD, is by Shane Ivers. 